Everybody, welcome to the show. Talking about amphibians today. A real fun one. A uh, couple quick notes. A couple things we forgot to mention. One thing to clear up my guest afterwards. Love scientists. Listen to this, guys. He was in his head. Asked how many amphibian species there were in the world. He thinks he might have mentioned 8,000. Says, wrote me afterwards. Said the estimates. Probably more like 6,000. This is why I love scientists, guys. My brain will just run away with anything. They're cautious, specific people that that value accuracy. If you hear me in future episodes, like telling another guest how many amphibian uh, species there are, I promise you, my subconscious, I'm just, I'm going to throw a little razzle dazzle on there. I'm going to say like 9,000. I might bump it up to like 16,000 amphibian species on earth, but got to know accurate number around 6,000. All right. So second, uh, more importantly, we didn't mention, forgot to mention that they are holding uh, the at the the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, the first global amphibian and reptile and disease conference in Knoxville, August four through ten. Links in the bio and on YouTube, etc. There's also a Twitter, um, G A R D. 2022 um that you can go to i put them under my follow me on twitter if you go on my list i have all of my past guests on there if you ever want to see what my guests are tweeting about usually it's stuff way more interesting than anything i bog myself down with tweeting about um and so guys it's you know you hear something like first global amphibian reptile and disease conference and a lot of people are just simply not going to be interested you know there's there you're probably not going to need to rush to get tickets you go out on the street you ask the average person something that they would like to learn more about or one of their uh, uh, uh biggest interests in life probably reptile disease isn't going to show up on there and what's special about this show is i always get the opportunity to hear about amazing things i would have had no idea that i that could possibly be so interesting could possibly say so much about also the human experience in the world um but more generally this isn't a clickbait podcast we don't i i don't do episodes about whatever uh drama was going on with someone wearing this and that on whatever red carpet it's not you know we don't we don't do the kind of general gossip or uh like the political feuding of like what politician is doing this for the midterm and you listen to this and you go, oh my gosh, now I know something. I got to hear about lizards. I got to hear about ecosystems. I got to hear about things that I wouldn't have known would actually impact my life. And I could have instead been spending all of that time watching cable news or getting myself worked up about 
whatever the fad of the day is that's circulating um, around. That's the, just the most important issue that everyone needs to talk about around the water cooler. And so uh, things like this might just surprise you. So um, so check it out if you want. It happened to be in, in Knoxville. But either way, you're going to really enjoy this episode. Who doesn't want to hear about critters that can just regenerate limbs and all sorts of weird kind of ways of living that are uh, seemingly so foreign to the human experience, um, but something that also does impact us, things that we can have as pets, stuff like that. Really cool episode. So enjoy. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. We have once again um, kind of brought to you by the One Health Initiative. We have another uh, terrific guest from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, professor of wetland and disease ecology. Matt Gray is joining us today. Matt, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing? I'm terrific. So can you, uh, I, I always like to, just because if I try to, do you ever go to um, see someone presented to give a talk and someone reads their entire bio and it's it sounds very contrived and they're screwing up things and they're they I avoid that by just having my guests introduce themselves to me and the audience. So why don't you do uh, why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Yeah. So um, my name is Matt Gray and I'm a professor at the University of Tennessee. I'm the associate director of the Center for Wildlife Health here. And I also lead the Amphibian Disease Laboratory. Um, I have been at UT since 2004, so go Rocky Top. Prior to UT, um, I grew up in Michigan, and I went to Michigan State, did my bachelor's there, and then what came down to the South to the SEC, went to Mississippi State for my master's. Uh, spent a couple of years down in Puerto Rico, hanging out on the beach and studying wetland ecology and amphibians. And then I went out to the high plains of Texas, where there were very few trees and very few hills and studied amphibians out uh, in the Playa Lake wetlands out there in a very different landscape for my PhD. Um, and so, uh, yeah, my area of expertise is wetland systems and also amphibian diseases. There's uh so you were in Costa Rica on the beach and you were just so passionate about your work that you're like, ah, I'm going to get out of here and, and pursue my research elsewhere. There wasn't there wasn't stuff to keep you in Costa Rica, huh? Yeah. So it was Puerto Rico. Oh, um, Puerto Rico. Sorry. Yeah. Puerto Rico. Yeah. But, but regardless, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, living yeah, on yeah. the beach. Uh, yeah, it was it was pretty nice. Uh, I was ready to, after a couple of years, move on and start working on my Ph.D. Right. And the opportunity in uh, Texas came open. But uh, 
I uh, ask because a, I'm I'm friends with uh, you probably know Robert Trivers. Um, as he, he does work with lizards, but he he yeah, yeah. he uh, he he went to Jamaica as an undergrad or something, and was just like, oh, I just like Jamaica. I guess I'm just gonna stay <laughs> here for the rest of my life. And, yeah, up. there's something about island life, you know. I'm a big Jimmy Buffett fan, so uh, <laughs> living on the beach was pretty natural for me. And yeah. I grew up in Michigan and on the water. I mean, there's water everywhere, you know, obviously the great lakes, but there's all these inland lakes. And so living on the beach in Puerto Rico is pretty, pretty sweet. And, uh, people are great. Food is great. Uh, yeah, it was tough. My hair went from about this length to, uh, maybe your length. I don't know, but ponytail in the back and everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, nice. Well, I, I'd really like to, start off by um kind of just doing some could we do a little amphibian 101 stuff some amphibian appreciation chat for a little while and then kind of talk about some of the uh bigger picture uh ecology issues and those sorts of things yeah. the, the way sure. this show is incredibly unstructured and i uh, i end up going off on a million tangents and just uh letting the conversation flow so but that that's kind of the the format that i have in my mind so let's uh let's hear first off what got you interested in amphibians in the first place so yeah um so for my phd i studied amphibians and i was uh really interested at that time my focus uh, started to expand into conservation biology and i was interested in how humans may impact uh, just wildlife populations on the landscape. And the, as I mentioned, uh, did my PhD out in Texas, and there's these lakes out there called Playa Wetlands. And uh, they literally will have thousands upon thousands of amphibians that will come down and breed explosively. The amphibians out there, these wetlands dry up um, every year. And so um, the it's very dry, only about 17 inches of rain per year. And uh, the amphibians live underground. And when they get these kind of monsoonal, just massive thunderstorms that happen in West Texas, um, you know, where it rains like three inches or so, it'll fill up the wetlands and it'll bring them right out of the ground and they come down. And it's just an amazing biological event to observe. And uh, so anyways, um, that really, once I did my PhD with amphibians, I, I knew I wanted to con continue studying them. I came to Tennessee and one of the first projects I did was uh, looking at uh, amphibian use of, of cattle ponds here in mm. Tennessee. We don't have a lot of wet, a lot of wetlands that are, that have standing water. We have lots of streams and um, you know, seeps and things like that. But as far as uh, kind of flat wetlands, uh, kind of bull type wetlands. We don't have many except for farm ponds. So um, I looked at the interaction of cattle and amphibians, and um, that's when actually uh, we discovered a, a pathogen that, that was infecting amphibians here called ronavirus and started to expand my interest into the disease world, uh, which we can talk about later. But, um, mm. you know, as far as amphibians and, and, and you know, how kind of I guess, cool. They are, you know, they are these. You yeah. Know, really well, well, what, first of all, what is an amphibian? What, yeah, what, what's, right. Let's just, let's just get down to the, the start from the basics. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, most 
People think of amphibians probably as having this tadpole stage. They go from an egg and then they uh, you know, develop into a tadpole and then they go through this miraculous process of metamorphosis and they become this terrestrial adult. And that's kind of called the, the typical life form or uh, life cycle of amphibians. Uh, but there are many other different ways that they survive and reproduce. And, and so some amphibians actually will lay eggs um, and underneath of eggs and the tadpole develops within the egg and then it hatches as a metamorph. Never does not even need to be laid in, in the water or anything. Wait, um, wait, did all, you say, did yeah. you say they lay eggs under eggs? So they, they'll, they'll lay eggs underneath of like leaves and, oh, okay. um, rocks and, and, I see, and I see. underground and, th- and, and things like that. And so, um, and so the, the tadpole itself will develop within the egg mm-hmm. and then they'll hatch out. It's called direct development. So instead of having that tadpole stage that everybody's so kind of familiar with, they skip that stage. And so that allows some amphibians to be completely terrestrial and not be around permanent water. In fact, many of the salamander species that we have here close to here in the Smokies have direct development. Um, but there mm-hmm. are other ones that will, um, some amphibians will uh, carry their eggs around with them. Uh, they'll uh, defend them. They'll, uh, there are some that will actually uh, eat their eggs and it'll develop like in their vocal sac or in their stomach. And then they'll end up spitting out live amphibians later. And so <laughs> there's just really uh, a variety. They're just really cool from that perspective, uh, kind of for, for you know, just being biological organisms. And, um, so I can't imagine just puking out like hundreds of little babies. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't sound like a fun process. (laughs) Um, but, uh, you know, amphibians have been on the planet. They're the the first terrestrial vertebrates, uh, that evolved. So over 300 million years ago, they've been around for a long time. They've had a lot of, evolutionary history to develop all of these different uh, strategies uh, for reproduction and survival, etc. You know, they've uh, lasted through multiple mass extinction events, including, uh, you know, whatever uh, was the demise of the dinosaurs, you know, so they survived Mm -hmm. through the era of the dinosaurs after they're still here with us. And so, they really have a ton of evolutionary history and actually within their DNA um, and, uh, you know, their, their bodies, they, they have a, a tremendous amount of information that, that, that we can potentially learn about animals here or even potentially use to the advantage of, of, of humans and human health. And we can talk a little bit about the biomedical benefits of amphibians here in a little bit if you want. But I would love uh, to really cool organisms. Well, I, it's amazing to hear how, um, to think about how resilient they've been because they do seem like pretty fragile creatures in a lot, uh, in a lot of ways. It, it, it seems like they, uh, the, the conditions that a, a given species needs is, is probably incredibly fragile i mean i mean just just the idea of counting on i've lived in austin texas for a couple years and i'm familiar with the 
the storms, but uh, j- just the idea of of uh, waiting around for a storm to happen or taking advantage of of a cattle pond that wouldn't have existed um, in uh, through through much of Earth's uh, history in that you know particular kind of a man-made uh thing that they're able to thrive in are they are they using kind of are amphibians using kind of a numbers game situation more than a lot of species where you're tossing a bunch of you're puking out a bunch of uh, a thousand babies at a time or whatever and hoping that that, uh, that enough survive or just kind of uh putting a lot of eggs in a lot of different baskets um or i how are they able to have survived for so long? Yeah, so, you know, the reproductive strategies of amphibians range from producing lots. Uh, so, uh, you know, laying, you know, thousands upon thousands of eggs and hoping that a couple survive to the next generation to actually laying very few and 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 usually with those species a lot of which are located in the tropics um in more stable environments the parents are 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 taking care of the eggs um so there's a lot of parental care and they may only you know have 10 eggs Mm. and so uh you know the in biology we call it r versus k selected species and and that range of reproduction from just producing a few and taking care of them and trying to get them to the next generation, uh, kind of like we do as humans, which would be case selected and then are selected, which is they reproduce a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and they produce lots of eggs and it's a numbers game. So, um, the, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm curious in the, in the case selected amphibians where there's more parental investment, is there any, uh, is there any paternal, uh, care at all in those species? Uh, they, they've given any Father's Day cards out in those yeah, species? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. And often it is the male that's uh, taking care of, of the, of the eggs. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, there's a species that is uh, actually in Europe called the midwife's tail, uh, toad, excuse me, uh, midwife's toad. And, and they carry them around, um, on their, on their back, the eggs until they're ready to, to hatch. Hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty, um, you know, again, there's a variety of, of ways and strategies that, that amphibians reproduce. And, and you can see that diversity across the entire group of animals. That's interesting. Cause, cause, uh, kind of going back to, uh, uh, I mentioned Robert Trivers in one of his uh, one of his big contributions is this idea of minimal parental investment uh, theory and and kind of the, mm-hmm. the the gender that has the most cost in investing in the offspring is typically the most selective and choosiest of a potential mate and there's there's been a lot of advances since since those early ideas that he that he had, but that was kind of the, the early basics of it. And some of the exceptions that proved the rule were things like seahorses where males would, uh, the, the female would kind of insert the eggs into the, uh, into the males. And, and so kind of some of the, the selection behavior was seemingly reversed, but I, I, I was, um, 
it is my understanding that you see that quite a bit more in freshwater species where where you'll see a lot more of of males carrying a lot of the uh, eggs to fruition more than you would see in other species. Yeah, that trend may be true, um, but I, I can let you know, as far as amphibians, um, pretty much they are all freshwater species yeah. uh, associated with freshwater systems. Uh, there are a couple that can uh, withstand, um, you know, some brackish conditions, but most amphibians need fresh water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one thing about their, their um, physiology that kind of makes them susceptible to environmental change. So you're kind of made a comment before about, um, you know, you know, how have they lasted so long and they take advantage of different things. Well, things were different, you know, have been different over, you know, millions and millions of years until of course, now we have humans that are changing the environmental conditions at very rapid rates. Right. And one thing that, um, amphibians, um, all amphibians have is they have uh, permeable skin. Uh, some is more per- their skin's more permeable than others, but um, they can um, uh, so through their skin they can absorb chemicals. They can uh, actually take up water, um, and uh, be- because of uh, of those conditions, number one, they can't live in a saline environment. But uh, number two, they're also very susceptible to environmental change, change that could be chemical in nature or change that could reduce moisture or humidity conditions around them. Because if their skin doesn't remain moist and dry or moist, they'll end up desiccating, they'll dry out. Mm. And so it's a constant battle with amphibians to uh, try to maintain um, a moist, moist skin. And we have, uh, I know we started off the discussion about, you know, uh, talking about amphibians in very dry areas like West Te- Texas or the desert Southwest, like the Sonoran Desert, there are amphibians. Now, how do they even survive in those environments? Well, they escape it by burrowing under the ground, keeping their skin moist, and they'll even like shed um, mucus and skin and kind of enca- encapsulate themselves within like a cocoon that keeps their skin moist. So it's a constant struggle for amphibians to always be, they have to keep their skin very moist. Hmm. And, um, so that's one of the things when it comes to, you know, uh, you know, humans impacting amphibians, obviously, if we apply chemicals to landscape, which we often do in agriculture, uh, we have chemicals that come out of the effluent of our sewer, uh, you know, sanitary sewer systems that go into waterways. Uh, we have chemicals that are actually attached to water molecules that are falling from the sky. And then, um, oh we, man, I I yeah, forgot so, about the chemicals falling from the sky part. That's, <laughs> I was ready for everything else today, and I forgot about the chemicals falling from, <laughs> from the sky. Gosh darn it! Yeah, you know, um, I'm I'm more in tune to following water chemistry now that I have a pool than, than I ever yeah. have before. Because after a rainfall, it's it messes up my the ke- water chemistry in my pool all the time. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, you know, amphibians, um, although they have this miraculous history of, of as a terrestrial vertebrate. Um, of 300 plus million years, 
they um, they're de- they're declining more than any other group of terrestrial vertebrates on on Earth. And so it's been estimated, you know, that about you know thirty five to forty percent of amphibians are in threat of extinction, and over fifty percent. Can, can you repeat that? Yeah, thirty five to forty percent of amphibians are in threat of extinction. And okay. over 50% of species uh, are showing some evidence of declines. And so they are the most imperiled um, class of vertebrates, terrestrial vertebrates that, that exist. Um, How many species are there? So around 8,000. Okay. Yeah. And, and this is our, our, where, how prolific are amphibians just around the world? Are they, is there just, you get up north far enough and you don't see amphibians anymore or what's, what's kind of their, their limitations? Yeah. Yeah. So they, amphibians exist on every continent, uh, in the world, um, except for Antarctica and, um, the, but the majority of species when it comes to frogs, the majority of species are around the equator. Uh, when it comes to salamanders, which is uh, not the other group of amphibians, the majority of those are actually in the temperate region. So some of the highest salamander biodiversity is right here in our back door here um, in the Smoky Mountains. Hmm. And, um, and there's another group, uh, the Sicilians, which we don't know much about. These are kind of like worm-like amphibians that are also in the tropics that many of them live underground. So, um, so the majority of the diversity is within the tropics, uh, and that's dominated by the, the frog diversity. Going back to some of the early origins of amphibians and uh, the things kind of starting to crawl out of the water um, a, a bit and be some of the early origins of terrestrial life as we know it, it do they have a common descendant or is this something that uh, has there been a lot of like convergent evolution has, has this been a, a something that's popped up multiple times independently through evolutionary history? Yeah. So there's a couple different theories of, of the historical evolution of amphibians, but um, the, really the ancient amphibians were really fish um, that would first, and they were very big. These were, you know, huge animals that, you know, might be um, like six feet and they're, they're kind of swimming in the shallows. And then they started to develop limbs that would allow them to get, push themselves up. And then some started to develop the ability to, to, uh, to, to take oxygen in um, with lungs. And, and so eventually these, big amphibians, the ancient amphibians were large, came out of the ground. There were no terrestrial, other terrestrial vertebrates. Uh, they came out into a predator-free environment. Uh, there was tremendous pr- uh, pressure, predatory pressure uh, in the aquatic environment. And so they were able to um, diversify and, and evolve um, within that nice system. And, and back then, you know, all the continents you know, we're basically around the equator. So it was a nice big swamp back then. <laughs> mm. And so perfect conditions for amphibians to, uh, to, to evolve. And, um, 
And then from there, then a variety of pr- uh, pressures of processes uh, changed the way amphibians look. Um, once we had the evolution of, of the dinosaurs, uh, just naturally the big amphibians got picked off. So you had this natural evolution of amphibians getting smaller and smaller um, in body size. And mm. um, of course, once the continents broke up and started to spread across, then you had environmental conditions changing, et cetera, that also um, added to that diversification over time. And in some situations, you had species that co had convergent evolution. So from disparate areas with not even similar um, phylogenetic relatedness, actually evolving very similar characteristics on opposite sides of the globe. And mm. so, um, so it's um, like flight where it's just such a, such a useful thing that uh, any species that, that, uh, um, that stumbles on, <laughs> on the ability to do it seems to take off. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. I mean, or maybe back then, not. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> it takes a while, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. but, um, you know, that is the process of exploiting open, what are called open niches, you know, and, and, uh-huh. um, you know, if you can find out how to survive, uh, different than something else, um, then your genes ultimately are passed on to the next generation and those traits are propagated over time. And, um, that's what, uh, amphibians have been doing for over 30 million years. So you have this very nice, tremendous diversity within a, the amphibian group, um, that, spans all these sorts of life um, uh, history strategies uh, and also strategies to you know acquire food and and etc so what's and, and to survive whether it's dry or moist conditions and and are, are they are are a lot of amphibians then breathing through their skin yeah. So I, I mentioned that their skin is, is, you know, semi-permeable so they can take up water. They can also, uh, respire through their skin. All amphibians have that ability to have oxygen pass through. Um, in fact, uh, the most amphibians, uh, do have lungs. Okay. Mm-hmm. But there are some amphibians that, that don't, um, the most, um, speciose, the most common, group of salamander species are in the family plethodontidae um and that group is called the lungless salamanders they um it's believed that they had lungs and then they de-evolved lungs um, over time because they didn't need them most of the plethodontid salamanders um, are like here in the smokies where they're associated with very high oxygenated streams and so they're able to take up that oxygen you know, through the water, they're in very moist conditions. And so, uh, um, anyway, so yeah, so, some, some mm. don't have lungs and they re- rely completely on, on, uh, cutaneous respiration. And then there are other species that have lungs that, um, during, for example, hibernation, uh, a real common one would be like the American bullfrog. A lot of them will go to the bottom of a pond and they will hibernate down there. And obviously they can't breathe water. <laughs> they have lungs, but they'll be continuously respiring during that hibernation process. So, um, mm. yeah, I mean, just again, really kind of cool adaptations that, that exist within amphibians. Yeah. What's some of the, what's some of the, um, more, 
bizarre, interesting strategies from your point of view? Because I, I think a lot of people have seen, uh, like, what is it, the poison dart frog or whatever, this beautiful looking uh, species that I I always, um, yeah, we, we, we sometimes talk on the show about the, the evolution of different, um, uh, different ways of signaling that, mm-hmm. that species have adapted. And, and I, I love the idea that something like a poison dart frog almost or something that makes itself incredibly colorful it makes itself stick out as a signal to predators to, for predators to see it and be like uh, too good to be true i better not if something's making yeah. itself that known there must be something up here and and yeah. then I, I'm, I'm curious if there's uh any amphibians that that then take advantage and mimic that uh, w- without actually being poisonous. Just uh, mm-hmm. just copy the the visual deterrent once that evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the aposematic coloration or warning coloration is exists in a lot of different uh, animals across the globe. Uh, amphibians are no exception. So it's it's warning coloration saying I'm toxic. Now, the, the interesting thing about the poison dart frogs is that they get their toxins from their diet. So mm. a lot of uh, one of the most common amphibian species in the pet trade are poison dart frogs. They got their name from, you know, indigenous people, you know, actually putting their, their darts or arrows, cutting it through their skin. And the toxin is so strong that, you know, you could shoot a, a small animal, a mammal and, and, and kill it. Uh, or a person for that matter. And mm-hmm. so, but they, they get it from their diet. They get it from eating these very, these ants that have this chemical. And so um, when you have poison dart frogs here in the trade, like for example, in the U S they're eating other things, they're not eating those ants. So they're, they're, they're not toxic. Although they have that warning coloration that's on them if they were in the wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as mimicry is concerned, yes, we see that with, with, uh, a variety of amphibian species. Um, here in the Smokies, we have a salamander called the imitator salamander. Um, and it imitates a variety of different color morphs of other species. One of which is called the red cheat salamander or the Jordan salamander. And that species is very toxic and has red cheeks. Uh, So it's a very dark salamander, but then its red cheeks are signaling to a predator, you know, don't mess with me. So an imitator salamander can look uh, to a predator very similar to a red cheek. Um, In hand, there are, you know, characteristics that you can tell the difference. But um, so that signaling happens. Uh, Yeah. And it's a, it's just a process of, of species uh, learning and, um, um, and, 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 and mimicking, uh, and figuring out, Hey, that that, that works, you know? Yeah. Without uh, having to burden yourself with putting a bunch of energy it, into making the actual toxin, you can just bluff. Without, yeah, that's right. That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, um, the species that we have here, like for example, the Jordan salamander, there's also a lot of folks in North America or the U S have seen, um, the eastern newt or the red spotted newt, uh, which is in the eastern U.S., it's very uh, colorful. The the juvenile stage is bright red with red spots, and they're very toxic. 
Um, and then in the Western U.S., there are also other newt species uh, like the rough skin newt and some others that are also very toxic. And, and they all have some sort of coloration generally associated with them to let predators know, don't mess with me. They are taking a, you know, they are investing uh, a fair amount of their energy resources to go into producing those, the, the glands and, and the toxins that are, that are there. Um, so it's worth, if you have that investment, if, if you don't want to, you know, if you're a salamander, be getting bit by a raccoon, for example, and then it goes, oh, wow, I tasted something bad and spitting you out. It's still not a good thing. There aren't any salamander hospitals that are out there in the wild, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> right. So, you know, it is, um, you know, these traits have been picked up through, you know, generations and generations to be able to show that coloration and like, oh, I'm not going to eat that animal because I know that it tastes bad. I can get sick. And so that's how these things happen over time. And next thing you know, you have these species with these very recognizable patterns. Hmm. Um, in, in terms of, in terms of, I, actually, before I get to the next question, uh, what's another, what's another one or two uh, strategies out there that, uh, that usually um, surprise people when you tell them about it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think one of the coolest things about amphibians is their ability to regenerate limbs. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, mean, I, I fact, like the, I, I love the, I just found out recently. Did I have, yeah, I had someone on talking about lizards a, a few months back and I loved the, I, I knew about a detaching tail that can regenerate i didn't know that there's a species where they can detach their tail and their tail will go scooting off in a different a different direction like a decoy that's right yeah a predator to chase amazing yeah i know i know yeah so the um kind of the and salamanders also they're it won't wiggle around, but like if a predator grabs its tail, it'll detach very easily mm. um, so that it just gets the tail. There's not a lot of tissue damage. It heals very, you know, pretty, it heals pretty quickly. Um, but I'm also talking about like literally amputation mm -hmm. um, and the ability to actually regenerate an entire limb. Um, it's most notable in what's called the uh, Mexican axolotl, uh, which is, um, uh, a species that's often found in, in the pet trade and it's used a lot in biomedical research. So there's a lot of work being done. You can imagine if we can figure out how salamanders can actually grow limbs, you know, the biomedical prospects of that, or potentially even uh, repair organs, you know, um, repair organ damage after heart attack or, or if, you know, some, some ailment, mm. uh, the, 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 it's just, amazing. And so what they're able to do is, um, you know, we all start off as stem cells. And so, you know, you've heard a lot of research in, uh, you know, the biomedical area with stem cells, but, um, and, and so just using stem cells to try to fix ailments to go in because stem cells can become any cell, any cell type. Now what salamanders are able to do that we cannot do is that once our cells become differentiated into skin cells and other types of cells that we have, they can't go back to becoming like a stem cell, but, but salamander cells can, they mm. can, they can relearn, they can be signaled to go back to acting like a stem cell. 
And mm-hmm. so the, a lot of the research is trying to focus on how, what is that signaling that occurs mm-hmm. so that w- you could be able to maybe put something within your body that would signal in these areas of damage how to go back to being a stem cell to repair yourself internally um, instead of, you know, a lot of the work, as I mentioned, is just kind of injecting stem cells and hoping that it um, kind of forms around an area and helps, you know, with tissue regeneration. So there's, that's a really cool thing um, that I, I think maybe most folks don't know. It's amazing. Amphibians. I, yeah. I have, uh, I, I have, uh, I had a couple foot surgeries um, years ago and, uh, it, it, and, it's uh, by the way for for uh listeners that have had to hear me tell this story over and over again it's it's doing pretty well it's it's healed uh, quite a bit but there's still like lots of scar tissue there's still i still have some mobility issues and and things and the idea of of one day uh living in an, in a world where uh, where we can use the learn things from amphibians or use stem cells in a way that that can treat things like that i i remember years ago having a guest on i it was it was so long ago i can't remember all the details very well but she studied um uh, fish hair cells for hearing and and how how uh you know these hair cells they they get damaged and in humans they get damaged and we lose hearing over time in fish they regenerate so they uh, their hearing can get damaged but it regenerates their hearing and how can we use that to uh potentially uh uh, address hearing problems in humans and the idea has stuck with me ever since because it's 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 incredible to think about. It's like a, it's it's a amazing sci-fi <laughs> movie yeah. situation. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, another kind of cool thing about amphibians. We were talking a little bit about toxins and talked about the biomedical aspects of limb regeneration. But um, so a lot of the the, the toxins that amphibians uh, can produce are also have really very strong analgesic capabilities. So they're, they're very potent pain medicines. Um, Mm. so some of those chemicals that have been sequestered, um, have the pain stopping ability, uh, uh, that is, uh, um, it's, for example, some of the comparisons are over 30 times more potent than morphine. And one cool thing about amphibian, uh, those chemicals associated with amphibian is that they're not, um, uh, they're not addictive. Um, there are some other side effects that, that some of the researchers have been working on that there may be some nausea associated with it, et cetera, but they're not focused on the opioid receptors or focused on different receptors of pain. And so they, um, are not, they don't have that addictive quality. Wow. And so, um, really, you know, as a biologist, I, you know, I hate to, to taunt the really neat evolutionary capabilities of amphibians and how humans can, you know, capitalize off of them. And so right. hence we should conserve them. But at the same time, they do have just a tremendous amount of biological information within each of their bodies evolving over all this time that, um, 
you know, really, you know, humans can take, you know, can take advantage of that. And if that also helps with their conservation and their, uh, and, and maintaining, help maintaining biodiversity in the wild, then, then, then great. Um, so, mm. um, anyways, and yeah, things I, are really cool for lots of reasons, uh, including there's lots of, uh, human uses potentially for them too. Yeah. I, I mean, I know all about pain management and, and, uh, from, from the foot related issues and, and things too. So it's that, that would be, uh, and, and I'm watching the, uh, the series dope sick on, on, uh, uh, Hulu or whatever, uh, right now. And so it would be, it would be, uh, it would be amazing if we keep on innovate, innovating better, um, better ways of, of managing pain in humans. There's also, my audience is going to kill me if I don't ask you about the five MEO, uh, <laughs> TMT. Are you familiar with the, uh, with, with the various, um, psychedelic properties of, of oh, yeah. amphibians <laughs> as yeah. well. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but 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 when it when it comes to things like that, that's that's actually a that's another issue. Is this uh, things like this five meo DMT? This I, I think it's a frog in Mexico or something that that mm-hmm. comes out. You go out at night, and there's there there are there, there's there's ways of cultivating um this substance that that have traditional uh use in cultures that are more sustainable than say when um when you know there becomes a some american or or european demand for this stuff and and suddenly i've i've heard of horror stories of of uh kind of people going and just scooping up a ton of these these frogs and um, shipping them in crates or around the world and it, it leading to population decline and mm-hmm. things as well. And, and, and that, that comes from, you know, that's kind of, I, I believe it's an illegal, um, drug, I believe it's a classed substance. So then what comes along with an illegal trade is usually unsustained, it, it, you know, poorly, um, poorly regulated and unsustainable, cultivation um of it and so i i kind of i wanted to ask you about things of that nature now it doesn't need to be that specifically but then just in terms of um sustainable uh, i'm sure the same can be true of the pet trade industry as well where i know they're incredible pets i remember being in grade school and everyone getting a tadpole to take care of or whatever and having this in in class and i i imagine there's there's plenty of bad actors out there and then i imagine there's probably uh i i've i've been to a lot of uh a lot of zoos as well where they do amazing conservation efforts and i've seen behind the scenes in zoos that that uh, like the the tremendous amount of hoops that they jump through to uh to one take care of uh like the the gourmet um chef experience in if you ever get a chance to go into a kitchen in a zoo it's incredible they're always trying to <laughs> enrich their diets and find yeah, yeah, new yeah. ways of you know entertaining 
and and providing better nutrients. There's a, a, I think on the Fort Worth Sioux, they do acupuncture on a bunch of mammals because they live so beyond their normal life that their spines start fusing together and stuff. And, and so so there are and in. And then a lot of the the money used in zoos is used. It, it goes to um, conservation efforts elsewhere, trying to help preserve endangered sure. species and, and stuff. And, and then there's and then there's of course bad actors that are that are uh, you know in, involved in the illegal pet trade and things. So mm-hmm. could we talk about that topic a little bit? Uh, the drugs or the illegal uh, oh, what, we're, we're, choose, choose your own adventure. And my my audience is like drugs. Now we just make them talk about the we're, drugs. We're good. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So there are a variety of reasons why amphibians are collected from the wild. Um, it, it, there may be you know some medicinal reasons. Um, and that, that goes across wildlife trade. Uh, there's the the legal wildlife trade industry is estimated at anywhere between you know eight and twenty billion dollars annually. You know, so there's um, you know, and a lot of that are the the, the very large megafauna, um, you know, rhinoceros horns and things like that. But uh, and that occasionally falls down into um, you know into amphibians, but to a lesser degree. Um, you know, most of the amphibian trade that occurs, uh, there aren't any estimates to be honest with you, as far as illegal, we're trying to get some estimates of, you know, how much of the amphibian trade is illegal. But, um, my, my feeling is it's probably a fairly small percentage, um, to, uh, actually get amphibians, um, into, for example, the United States, um, it's a fairly easy process just as long as they aren't listed as a species. So that's a, a treaty among, uh, nations that, you know, that were basically not collecting animals that are threatened or endangered from other countries and importing them for ex- into the U S or into other countries. So that animals that are rare, are not allowed to be taken from the wild. And so there's a list that, um, is, is that, that exists for all countries that you can't have these CITES, CITES list of species. And so <clears throat> there is probably, uh, you know, some situations where you have CITES list of species that, you know, sometimes the rarer the species, the more people will pay, you know, that yeah. they are, you know, people are trying to smuggle those in, um, Probably not too difficult to smuggle in uh, amphibians, right? Uh, whether it, uh, somebody's bringing them or you just ship them and you declare it as something else. Um, so, you know that that occurs. But I think it, it, for the most part, the amphibian trade industry is is composed of fairly really good actors. Um, and we've just That's completed a yeah, we've just completed a series of um, sociological uh, surveys. Uh, social science surveys where we ask amphibian businesses here in the U.S. a bunch of questions and amphibian consumers, pet consumers, you know, um, kind of their interest. And, um, you know, one thing that, um, so just to, first of all, maybe it's a better place to start if we want to talk a little bit about trade, about, you know, how big is amphibian trade? Um mm-hmm. And so 
in the United States, we import around 4 million live amphibians per year. Okay. Now that is, I don't know if that is a, means a lot to your listeners or your viewers. That's, uh, 4 million. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, that's like one amphibian per, per hundred person basically in the, yeah, in the United yeah. States. So it's a fair, yeah, it's, it's a fair number uh, of animals. Um, to give you an idea globally, though, the United States comprises 50% of the global market. So we are hmm. the number one country importing amphibians across the globe. Hmm. Um, most of those amphibians um, are coming from Southeast Asia region, uh, areas of, of Western Africa, um, so um, like around Madagascar, and also down through Central America, like Nicaragua and Panama. Um, and some down into uh, South America. And most of the, well, the number one species, ironically, that is imported, uh, your listeners might get a kick out of this, is the American bullfrog. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yes. From, so from, other, from, from other countries. countries. Okay. That's right. Uh, huh. And so um, we, there, used to be many years ago, there used to be a lot of American bullfrog farms around the United States or a fair number. And, you know, they would raise bullfrogs and it would go into the, um, into the, uh, you know, the frog leg market, you know, the, the food market, um, was the primary use of those, but, um, it wasn't very profitable. Uh, fish hatcheries are much more profitable than raising bullfrogs. And so that industry kind of disappeared, but, in lots of other countries uh, around the world, um, in this hemisphere and, and, and uh, on the other side of the world, we exported uh, American bullfrogs and their eggs and they're raised all over. And so the American bullfrog is one of the largest frog species in the world. They produce like 10,000, 20,000 eggs at a time. Uh, you can mass produce them really quickly. Um, and they are a very good protein source. Um, mm. and so, um, we actually eat a lot of bullfrog, egg, uh, bullfrog eggs, bullfrog legs <laughs> here in the U S but most of those animals are actually imported as live. And then they go through production here. Mm. Um, so about half of the animals that we import are destined for so about 2 million animals or so go into really just the food market. Uh, but the rest are our pets. So, you know, about 2 million, one to 2 million animals per year are being, you know, imported into the pet industry mm. and, uh, from, from, you know, across, across the globe and, um, us and the European union and Japan are the number one importers. Mm. Um, and, most of the amphibians, again, that are imported into those area, into uh, into the into the importing countries, are not from those uh, from those areas. So, like I said, most of the imported amphibians are from uh, uh, Southeast Asia, Western Africa, and um, and Central and South America. So, would would you say that? I mean, would you say that it's what do you think about amphibians as as pets? Are they are they pretty? One, are they pretty easy to keep? Two, is it is it um, is it is it something that is like fairly ethical compared to you know? Is it certainly compared to like uh, get, getting some 
primate species or, or or something like that shipped in what um or everyone's familiar with like the the lion king program that took the world by storm at the beginning of of covid or whatever uh it, in terms of having a an odd uh like exotic ish pet where would you uh, what do you think about amphibians yeah, you know, having pet amphibians, I, I think, is is a neat hobby. Um, a lot of people really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, that a lot of them are really cool. Uh, they are fairly easy to keep. Uh, some are a little more challenging than others. Uh, they're uh, some are really you know colorful, um, and they're also it's pretty neat to watch them eat. So you, all amphibians are insectivores, so you can watch them. You know, watch that predatory action. Uh, when you feed them like flies or, or some other sort of uh, insect. Um, and so, you know, in the legal trade, the amphibians that are imported um, are not CITES listed. Uh, and so they're, they are common, um, at least currently within the environment. And, uh, but one thing I'll also mention is from our recent survey is that of the amphibians sold within the United States, it's only about 10% are imported. Mm-hmm. About 90% um, are actually being raised and, uh, and produced here in the U.S. So these could be species from all over the globe. But um, what we're seeing as far as imports is that imports are tending to, 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 to decrease as far as amphibians over time because there's more and more businesses that are getting into uh, the amphibian production or frog production business for pets. Uh, it's a, it's a pretty lucrative business. Uh, you know, some frog salamanders go for 50, hundred, bucks uh, more uh, if it's a really cool species. You even see this in this, uh, the, the snake trade too, uh, where, where folks want certain color patterns, etc. And so uh, one thing that we found from our surveys is with respect to consumers, pet amphibian consumers, is that they um, are a very well-informed group. Um, Many of them have college degrees. Many of them know a lot about the threats of amphibians. Many of them uh, have conservation interests. And with people having pets as amphibians, um, you create a connection. Right. And Mm -hmm. so uh, I think there is a fine line between, um, you know, just having lots of having animals and taking animals from the wild or then reproducing them and having them as pets or just some people don't even think you should have pets, any sort of non-domesticated animal as a pet. And and that's fine to have that that opinion. Um, But there does create. Pets create a connection. You know, if you've ever had a pet, whether it's a dog or a fish or maybe a snake or an amphibian, you know, there's a connection there. And Mm -hmm. because of that connection, people have a greater appreciation for the animal um, Mm -hmm. and are more likely to think about things like wild amphibians and conserving wild populations, whether it's here in the U.S. or abroad. So whether it's folks having amphibians as pets or zoos having amphibians or other animals for people to come and view. Uh, 
it is an educational process that helps people increase their awareness and mm. appreciation for, for, for animals in general. And That's a great point. That, I mean, it, it, yeah. Sorry. No, I mean, because of that, uh, I, I think cap, having captive wildlife that are in a captive wildlife industry um, is, is beneficial and yeah. it can help in the process of conservation and, and um, you know, conserving biodiversity around the world. That's really, that's a really, really interesting take because so many of us, uh, you know, aren't living on a ranch, uh, you know, connected with wildlife. And so, and, and right. amphibian is something that you can, you can be in the center of Manhattan and have a, 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 a pet um, in, in a tank and that, that connects you and reminds you about nature in ways that uh that you wouldn't normally have a kind of hands-on experience with that's uh huh absolutely that's interesting i i also it's interesting to hear that that uh edu uh, that that it tends to um uh, educate a lot of educated people tend to yeah. or, or amphibian owners it, it tend to be educated people that's a what a wonderful way to advertise your uh your intellect just to have some uh <laughs> <laughs> some frogs next to your bookcase of of science books you've never actually read or whatever so when company comes <laughs> over you get to go well uh look at my brain yeah um, <laughs> right very cool. Well, uh, how about uh, before before we get into um, uh, some more ecological issues, I want to go back to the biomedical stuff because that that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. sure. What what things have actually? Okay, so amazing. Let's get our limbs back and our hearing back, and let's fix my scar tissue and everything else. That's that's terrific look forward to that but what things have actually already already been curated from uh from studying and researching amphibians yeah that's a good question um and i'm not sure i have an answer for that uh i know that where lots of areas of research are being done but um i'd have to look into particular examples of hey every anybody that takes this by the way that's derived at least initially from an amphibian one. Well, there's always weird things. There's, I think, the, I think yeah. like, I think, I think something with snails, uh, was some of the early, they, what we use for the, and he's adhesive and band-aids came from snails yeah. originally or something like that. I don't know. So I'm, I'm yeah. sure there's a bunch of things, but if you don't know, that's fine. Well, um, you know, so I don't know if folks know, but there's um, the African clawed frog. It's in the genus Xenopus. Um, it's these really ancient kind of prehistoric frogs. They're totally aquatic. Uh, these are the frogs you often, you, could, you know, see them in a pet store. They're, uh, they've got webbed feet and they're pink usually, usually red eyes. And uh, uh, so, so that species was uh, originally used as one of the first um, ways that we found out you could test for uh, birth, um, whether or not somebody was uh, pregnant, a woman hmm. was pregnant. So, you know, a hormone that women produce when they are pregnant, uh, we can basically take, it's in their urine. You could take the urine, you could 
expose uh, these frogs, uh, female frogs to it, and they would begin to ovulate. And so the or like progesterone or something like that, or do you, do you know? It doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. I'm not sure about the hormone, but, but the, um, uh, so yeah. And they would obviously, so the, the very first pregnancy test that actually existed, uh, frogs were used, uh, <laughs> now they have synthetic tests, but it, yeah. So that's kind of a, just an interesting tidbit of information. That because would be that, fun to go F, back to the frog yeah. way of, of doing instead of waiting for the, the little <laughs> markers or whatever, that would be right. what a nerdy way, fun way to test yeah. if you're pregnant. Yeah. Uh, 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 yeah. uh, I cut you off again, uh, as I tend to do, but, but, uh, continue your thought. You no, said that, because that, of that, that's, that's how, okay. I've cool. never tried it. I- <laughs> <laughs> I've never tried it. Uh, okay. So, so let's get into, um, some of your, can, can, can you talk about your work with the, uh, ecological impacts and, um, some of the, uh, concerns. I I love a good. We've we've built a wonderful appreciation for amphibians, and now I I want to do the uh, I want to do the later in life David Attenborough. Here comes the next great extinction <laughs> <laughs> sort of mm. uh, thing. Things to be aware of um, that uh, because I I imagine in a lot of ways because of the uh, the, the sensitivity of, uh, the, the nature of, uh, of amphibians, living condition and their sensitivity to, um, water and climate. I imagine in, in certain conditions, they're the canary in the coal mine for, uh, for things like overuse of chemicals and, and, mm-hmm. uh, e- even, e- even, uh, uh, global warming leading to increasingly uh, dry conditions and desertification in uh, throughout the globe. So, uh, yeah, what what is your work regarding um, wetland and ecology and tying this all together with amphibians? Yeah. <clears throat> so, as we talked earlier, um, yeah, and. Amphibians are the most imperiled vertebrate class, and there's lots of reasons for that habitat loss, et cetera. Um, but one thing that has recently arisen as a cause of amphibian declines and extinctions is disease. Mm-hmm. And um, historically, um, disease as a population regulating factor or a factor in species extinction has been really dismissed in the field of, of ecology. Um, there was some initial mathematical modeling done back in the 70s that suggested that really, in most situations, disease will not drive a host population to extinction. We now know that's false. Um, so in the 70s, a, or 70s, excuse me, the 1990s, um, a fungus called uh, the chytrid fungus, Atrachychytrium dendrobatidus, or BD, for short, uh, was discovered, um, killing amphibians, killing frogs, um, in, in, in Central America. And then shortly thereafter, we discovered the emergence of BD in other parts of the world. Um, that really turned the ecology world, 
world upside down when they realized there were this was a, a pathogen never described before. It's killing these animals to where they aren't there anymore, and some species are disappearing. Um, and that's happening in multiple locations, okay, around the world. And uh, you know, since that initial discovery in the late '90s to now, you know, 20 years later, um, th- uh, that pathogen, along with a sister pathogen that's just been discovered called Batrachychytrum salamandrovorans, or B. Sal, um, and another pathogen called Ronavirus, uh, have contributed to the d- decline of over 500 species across the globe, mm. and uh, it's s been estimated that uh, there have been a, approximately a hundred uh, species extinctions associated with, with with BD specifically. So we know this now after the development of those initial epidemiological models that in certain conditions, um, the the pathogen itself or the way the host interacts with each other, that if you have a disease uh, or a pathogen, and we all congregate together, all right, we're all going to get it. That would be one example of how, and this is it, this is our species in this room right here, we're all going to get it. We're all going to, if it's easily transmissible. And so the thing about chytrid and ronavirus is that both of those uh, pathogens can transmit very easily. Um, and they, um, can live in the environment or persist in the environment for a certain good amount of duration, a couple of weeks. Um, and the other thing is, is that amphibians, um, you know, they, they come together and they often will breed in, in groups. And so you, the host populations will maybe kind of disperse, but then, uh, come springtime, for example, here in the temperate U.S., then they all come together and there's very high contact rates. And that allows that transmission to occur within a population very rapidly. So because of the life history of amphibians and because of the characteristics of the pathogen, um, we've witnessed uh, you know, population declines and, and species extinctions. Um, and that's those group of amphibian pathogens um, have, have really resulted in the greatest biodiversity loss that we've observed in modern history, and mm. it's associated with a disease. So, um, so that's kind of a, a real recent revelation that disease can, you know, really affect populations. Obviously, we just went through a pandemic, so <laughs> folks are fairly uh, in the, the general public uh, familiar with how quickly. Uh, things can transmit, uh, pathogens can transmit, and, and the potential effects on on, on hosts. Yeah, I, I think that one of the um, big misunderstandings that I that I've noticed um, during the pandemic is uh, people kind of writing a lot of this off as just like, oh, you know, we have immune systems; these things just happen, and kind of aren't aware of uh, the novel conditions of our modern environment, the sort of things that the kind of One Health Initiative um, addresses with biodiversity loss and just kind of becoming aware of things like 
you know, viruses and things have been around for 4 billion years, but this is the first time that it was able to, uh, a virus is able to fly around to the other side of the world in less than a day <laughs> and, right. and potentially affect a new population, a population that is uh, speaking of, of uh, New York City moments ago that that is has confined confined such an uh, insane number of of uh, species in terms of humans to such a, 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 a novel a, a a uniquely small area uh, that is unlike anything that our that a human immune system was built in and built for. And, um, and I, I imagine there's a lot of things like that happening in, in lots of species with biodiversity loss and probably in amphibians where the, uh, so, so amphibians first going back through evolutionary time, they first come on land and there's this predator free environment it's just this oasis of if you can if you can adapt for this condition the world's your oyster you have nothing but space to explore and uh resources to exploit and now there's because uh, a lot of because of human impact and changes in temperature the some of the the area that that uh many species are able to live in is shrinking and that that shrinking of that uh, is is creating more and more confinement within species, which is a dream scenario for a lot of uh, disease and bacteria and viruses to uh, that that mm-hmm. want to f- want to spread to more hosts. So if you pack a bunch of hosts together, uh, it's going to take off and be able to replicate and spread a lot more. Yeah. So you touched on two things that are some of the primary causes for emerging infectious diseases, whether it's humans or animals, frogs. And that is number one is that there are pathogens when it comes to wildlife that evolved with their host on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. But the amphibians over here in North America or vice versa have not been exposed to those pathogens or they've been exposed to a, a, a quite different strain or variant of it. And so the effects on the hosts are, are, are pretty severe. Um, and, and uh, unless until most of the population may, could, could be, could, could die, or uh, maybe there's a few that have resistance and then that's all that's left. If they can find each other to reproduce and then you would have this natural evolution or selection towards those individuals mm-hmm. with that immunity. So, one thing that is has changed is that you know through global trade, globalization, um, etc. You know we're moving pathogens. Humans are moving pathogens around ourselves if we're coughing on each other, but also through our trade processes. Um, you know the amphibians can be imported into the U.S. Um, and they could have micro pathogens on them, and there are no regulations um, here in the United States and actually most countries when it comes to the importation or the trade of wildlife internationally, there are not animal health uh, requirements. There are for domesticated animals. uh, There are for aquaculture species. But for wildlife, um, they do not need to have what's called an animal health certificate. 
So those sorts of processes and requirements exist internationally through the World Organization of Animal Health. And um, there are certain pathogens that if you're trading domesticated wildlife that you have to prove they, these animals do not have these, these pathogens to be imported into a country. That does not exist for wildlife. There are, there's, there, there's no regulatory requirement. So again, whether it's you know, so a mammal or a bird or, or a frog that's going from one country to another, it's the, the, the floodgates are wide open as far as moving these animals and their microbes coming with them. So that is certainly um, without a question, one of the reasons how Kitchery got around the world and it believed that it evolved in South uh, East Asia uh, over time um, and that it was disseminated across the globe through, through trade. And um, the, uh, so, so that's one thing. One is the movement of pathogens, uh, the global translocation of pathogens. Um, the second is evolution. Uh, so <clears throat> when you have really high contact rates uh, among a host species, like you're talking about, the pathogen itself will often have faster, will, will have more opportunities to mutate, to change, and to evolve into something that can be hypervirulent. And um, in trade, often animals are in high densities. And if you have animals, even in that come together from different parts of the world, they could have, for example, uh, uh, the one virus I mentioned, ronavirus, there could be different species of ronavirus that are similar enough. They can infect the same host cell. They can be in there and they can actually swap DNA and result in rapid evolution. Mm. But also, you know, viruses as you know, how, how many, well, I'm not even sure what variant we are on with COVID now, you know, I mean, they evolve so quickly that um, just through the natural DNA replication process, there's all these errors that can occur that things start to, some of those errors don't do anything. And then some of them, all of a sudden, our immune system's like, what is this? It doesn't, doesn't recognize it. Mm -hmm. And so the process of high contact rates that you mentioned a bit ago in cap captive animals, when you have animals that are infected or animals from different areas with different strains can result in the evolution of hypervirulent pathogens. Mm -hmm. And so that we, we uh, published a paper a couple of years ago that actually documented that happening um, within actually a, a bullfrog farm that was, that was in Georgia, where mm -hmm. you had two different strains coming together to create something that was twice as virulent as the two, what are called sister strains coming together or parent strains coming together. Can more confinement lead to amplification of, yeah. of, uh, uh of, of yeah, viruses okay. that a species is already kind of living with and managing. Yeah. Um, like evolutionarily, there's been this, uh, this <clears throat> stable system between the immune, the immune system and the, the host and virus or whatever. But, right. but now because of these new conditions, the, the virus is able to amplify a lot quicker. Yeah. So that happens in two different ways. One is that when you can find animals, um, in high densities, uh, it also, also creates stressful situations. So when we are stressed as humans, um, you know, if you're not sleeping much, et cetera, uh, we produce, um, these hormones, glucocorticoids that actually suppress our immune system. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And it's no different with, with, with other animals. And so what happens is with a suppressed immune system, things that are around can then start to replicate and take over and you become sick. Right. And so, uh, the, the process of being stressed because of your surrounding environment is one thing. And then the other is what I kind of had talked about before, where when you have high contact rates, you increase the probability of transmission. And if you're transmitting and you're having, you know, uh, lots of pathogen replication going on, you increase the likelihood of, of it evolving into something that's hyper virulent. Uh, there's some epidemiological research that set that says or shows that if you have unlimited number of hosts that you can contact and infect, that your virulence, your ability to transmit, your ability to even kill the host will go up because there's no cost except I'm just going to, I can keep producing, producing, producing more. And so there's by jamming things into a small area, host into a small area, stressing them out. There are two things that actually can result in two mechanisms that can result in hyper virulent things occurring Mm. or, or Mm. outbreaks or which when you talk about amplification, just producing more of the pathogen uh, into the environment. Yeah. Um, And so what about, um, what can be done in terms of, as we just become kind of more aware of this stuff, I I imagine if you're, uh, if, if you're some, um, governor in whatever state and like all of all the issues going on probably you hear about some uh some issue and with bullfrogs or something like that you're like i got enough on my plate i don't need to address bullfrogs right now how do we increase awareness and and because a, a lot of these things are uh just exist so much of science the average person just never has to hear about or deal with is just running on in the background most of the food that we get from the grocery store we don't have to think about the amount of biosecurity measures that have taken place to make sure that viruses don't take off when uh when we're grouping a bunch of cows or chickens together or whatever else. And, and the, the number of processes that it, and regulatory factors that keep us from eating diseased food. Um, what, what sort of things would you like to see extended more toward um, uh, protecting ecological environments and some of the wildlife trade of amphibians and and that's sort of in terms of needing like a animal health certificate and stuff like that, what would you like to see implemented? Yeah. I mean, what is really desperately needed is some sort of, of clean trade uh, program. Um, and so that exists, like I said, with domesticated animals, but it doesn't with wildlife. So some sort of standards or requirements that, um, uh, help promote or require um, that animals have that are traded are negative for pathogens that are known of 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 conservation concern, and um, 
you know, right now with amphibians, uh, that would be the two chytrid fungi and ronavirus. Uh, I had mentioned the World Organization for Animal Health. Their job is to, to really look at pathogens and list them with respect to their potential effects on industry, on, on wildlife populations, et cetera. And, and then if they're listed, which BD, B-cell, and ronavirus are listed, they're called notifiable. Um, there's no regulatory thing connected with them unfortunately, because they're wildlife pathogens, but listing, you have to have a list to go from so that um, importers know what that would need to be tested. Um, but uh, you also need to have some sort of program to facilitate that. Uh, programs of clean trade can run through either regulations or they can, so you have to do this or you'll be fined. Um, or, and, or they can, they can, be done through a process of facilitation. And I think ultimately what would be ideal is some sort of program. And again, this is beyond, you know, just amphibians, but for wildlife where it's a government supported program uh, that would number one, require the testing of imported animals and then uh, potentially periodic testing within the domestic trade industry that, uh, that your, population of animals is free of pathogens. And I think uh, based on the surveys we've done um, that a pathogen free certification program, so you can certify your amphibians or your whatever wildlife as being pathogen free is one, number one, that businesses are, ex are, are willing to accept. They like the idea. Consumers have also indicated through our consumer surveys that they would be willing to pay more for a pathogen-free amphibian. And it makes sense because if the wildlife that you're acquiring as a pet are free of pathogens, then they're not going to uh, pass it on to your other amphibians in your, uh, in your aquaria right. that could then ultimately die. But this also links directly to uh, the conservation implications because how these pathogens ultimately get from, you know, the uh, from the wild across the world to an importer to a distributor to a breeder to your house, right, goes all the way through that chain. How does it get to the environment? Is either somebody releases the animal? or the animal dies and they just toss it out in the environment, or they even discard the aquarium contents or water into the environment that could contain the pathogen. So there's, you know, three or four ways that that pathogen release can occur. And then if that comes in contact with a suitable host, another amphibian, then that's where you get the transmission to a live animal, to another live animal that then can transmit, um, uh, to, to others. And we know this occurs. Uh, we're actually watching the emergence of the other chytrid fungus I mentioned, B-sal, occur through Europe right now. Mm -hmm. Move from the northern part of Europe all the way to the southern part of Europe. And it's a and and it, it is did not, it's not from there. It's from also Southeast Asia. And it was introduced very likely through the pet trade. Um, and uh, we have um, cases of of exotic amphibians uh, that are living in wild populations now that occur in Florida, California, and other places where people 
just they think they're doing a good thing. They and they I don't want to take care of it, so I'm going to release it to the wild. Mm-hmm. So the the way to really approach um, wildlife trade and the risk of pathogens moving with them, which by the way could be zoonotic as well in some wildlife species, that so it could affect us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is through a, a, a program that is supported by the government that. Uh, a, a, that requires and allows and supports the testing of animals. Um, and then a certification process that helps increase the value of the animals that these are, this is a certified, you know, this is a certified business that's pathogen free, or these are certified animals. And uh, from our surveys, it sounds like consumers are, would be willing, at least for amphibian, pet amphibian consumers are willing to pay more. Hmm. Um, to, to cover, to cover that cost. And so what that would look like, we don't know, uh, that's the future discussions we need to, to have with the pet industry. Um, but also with appropriate government officials. Very cool. And what, uh, as we close out, could you, uh, could you say a few words about the one health initiative, just kind of tell, um, new listeners what the one health initiative is and, um, and, and, and kind of why it, uh, why it's kind of important to the discussion that we've been having. Right. Yeah. So at the university of Tennessee, we started the one health initiative a couple of years ago. Uh, one health is, is, a, is a concept that has been around for a couple of decades. Um, uh, but it's really now just gaining traction, um, within, uh, within the field of biological sciences and, uh, and medicine. And it is uh, the idea that we are are thinking about and and about health as a connected uh, a connected system, so that the health of humans is linked with the health of the environment, which is linked with the health of agricultural animals, and is linked with the health of wildlife, and that we need to think about these things as being interconnected. We already talked about lots of examples of humans potentially negatively affecting the health of, of wildlife through changes in the environment, moving pathogens around, but clearly wildlife can negatively impact humans too, right? Um, you know, the, the whole COVID pandemic is a COVID SARS COVID two is, is, uh, is, uh, is, is, was evolved from bats. So we can see how, and there's lots of examples, um, you know, how that interaction is important. And so monitoring the health of wildlife, the health of humans, the health of the environment and domesticated agricultural animals is key. And ultimately the goal is if you were able to monitor uh, and and keep track of pathogens that are moving and, and uh, among these three component, those components, is that you could have a better alert system to detect where new pathogens evolved or where you have spillover from one group from like wildlife to humans, humans to wildlife or domesticated animals. And it it can help with response to disease outbreaks. Uh, It can help with track and trace. It can make us a more ready society. SARS-CoV-2 was, you know, the worst pandemic, you know, in a hundred years. Right. Um, but when, 
as devastating as it has been to to the global economy, um, to our lives, our personal lives, uh, there's something else that's going to evolve. And very likely, it's going to be more wicked. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if most of your viewers have, I'm sure, heard of Ebola, Ebola has a 50% mortality rate. Yeah. What if it, it's a hemorrhagic disease? Yeah. All right. What if SARS-CoV-2 had a 50% mortality rate? And, you know, uh, not trying to scare your viewers at all. Oh, no, it's that's what but that's what viruses do. Yeah. They jump between hosts, between wildlife, domesticated animals, humans. They take these big jumps in evolution and they acquire new ways of 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 surviving themselves as pathogens that is at a much faster scale and rate than often we can we we can we can respond or we or, or we, our bodies can change right and so um, be really developing a system a one health system a one health network which is really a global effort um, is a way that we can try to be ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so getting that system up and running from uh, a university here to a state, to multiple states, to a country, to multiple countries is the ultimate goal. We're not even close there at, at the global scale, uh, you know, let alone at smaller, you know, regional scales. It's the one health initiative, something that's really just starting to get some, some traction is, It'll be something that hopefully uh, will develop and uh, be implemented um, on a broad scale in the future. Yeah, amazing. Because it's also if if uh, if hosts if if hosts uh, help <laughs> by, uh, viruses and disease spread by not doing things to mitigate them, there's uh, 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 there there's a lot of opportunity for more virulent uh, diseases and viruses to to take off as, as well. Right. I mean, if, 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 if what do you, right. what do you, the, just one last question. Cause what do you, you, you sort of mentioned this before. And, and I know, I know this is, I've heard some takes a, a little bit back and forth, but it seems the general understanding is, is that if, if something is really virulent, um, Oftentimes it will kill off a host before it's able to spread. So sometimes it, uh, things that are less virulent will have an easier time spreading. But if something's having an easy time spreading from host to host, there's there's no reason why a more virulent strain isn't going to take off just by the nature of wanting to replicate as fast as possible. Why not replicate more in a host body if it's if that host is going to go spreading it to other hosts anyway? why not favor that through selection? Right. Yeah. So high transmissibility. Um, I mean, we are the most connected species in mm-hmm. the world, humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, you know, we, we've seen it. We saw mm-hmm. Omicron go across the entire world in a matter of, of less than a month. I yeah. mean, that's how fast it can occur. So the evolution towards transmission and, 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 is one thing I, I get to transmit, but in, in, in virulence is a component of that. But the, the pathogenicity is the other component, which is, is, you know, so how much of 
you know, virulence, how much of more virus can I put out and how easily can I transmit? So Omicron was, uh, was at least twice as transmissible as Delta, which was like twice as transmissible as the original uh, SARS-CoV-2, right? Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing this evolution to faster transmissibility, but we're also seeing the pathogenicity uh, decrease. The the important thing, regardless of the evolution, the evolution of pathogens is going to occur at a rapid way, way and often in ways that are, are very difficult to predict. We do have the toolkits um, to, um, to do disease management, to do disease intervention. Um, and that's kind of the, the key about a One Health perspective is to be able to put in different strategies, whether it's in wildlife, whether it's in livestock, whether environments or in humans that will help reduce that likelihood of transmission of evolution, et cetera. And, um, so we, we do have a lot of tools in the toolbox. Uh, we just need to coordinate those and implement those. We saw, uh, uh, actually failures of that during the, the COVID outbreak in, in multiple ways. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it was, um, uh, the lack of communication, uh, the, um, the lack of coordination, uh, and, you know, and, and, and some of the messaging. So, mm-hmm. um, anyways, the, yeah. that's what needs to improve. If, if anything, I think a one health perspective will help response to emerging infectious diseases in the future, whether it's with humans or other animals. And, uh, um, so, well, I'm excited to watch it grow. There's definitely, there's definitely a need for it. And so hopefully with that need will come more of a demand and more of a public awareness as well. So I appreciate you. Thanks for sharing, um, so much, uh, Matt Grave and, and being such a good guest and, uh, yeah, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Shane. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. All right. I hope you enjoyed the show, everybody. Once again, the first global amphibian and reptile disease conference is in Knoxville, August 4 through 10. Um, More importantly to the rest of you, Put in a few fun links in in the description. If you're on uh, if you're on YouTube, by the way, through also subscribe. You can go on. We included a link that Matt sent me um, about some pharmaceutical attributes of amphibian skin, and also a neat video on limb regeneration. So. You might find that interesting. Um, coming up on the show, I actually have an, a, a bunch of episodes banked right now, so I'm not sure. I've done um, I've done some some COVID and and misinformation stuff recently. I I have some more of that um, coming up, so I'm spacing it out um, a little bit, and then I have a I have several other things maybe maybe next week ayahuasca episode Ooh, speaking of clickbait i'm kind of um i have a i just have to see um because i think two weeks from now one of the episodes that i'm looking forward to 
probably going to be the best episode of the entire year is coming out. So uh, next week's going to be a surprise. Just know that I have a bunch queued up, ready to go already. And if uh, next week's episode comes out, um, uh, perhaps like a day late or something, my editor, Matt, is uh, currently on a uh, on a bit of a vacation and so should still be out on time um, next Wednesday. But otherwise, it will be out on Thursday or something like that. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the support on Patreon. That's how we keep this show ad free. If you haven't checked out the Patreon, please do. It helps me out a great deal. It's how I pay Matt. And um, and I would would love to be able to add more things um, to this show eventually as we have more funds. So those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.